but it would have been better if we could have integrated that into the plot and not made that something that I read on the IMDb trivia page. listening to Replaying Favorites, it's the podcast where the journey to explore our differences reveals our similarities. I'm Chris Kelly. I'm Brie Callahan. <laughs> and I realize that that is a ridiculously pompous intro, but we're watching The Dark Crystal, which is a big, serious movie played by Muppets, which is a perfect metaphor for our podcast itself. Oh, God, isn't it? I mean, just absolute Muppets is like <laughs> what I think about when I think about the two of us doing film analysis and commentary. Oh, it's a painful experience to listen to myself while I edit this. Anyway, Brie, what do you know about The Dark Crystal? So as we discussed at the end of last week's episode, I have seen The Dark Crystal once or twice. I... Guys, I'm just the biggest scaredy cat. I don't even know how to deal with it. Eventually, Chris is going to assign a movie that I just will not watch. But I was too scared to watch Labyrinth. And then I watched Labyrinth and that was fine. So some folks talked me into watching The Dark Crystal. So I would have been like 14 or 15. And I think I've seen it like once since. It definitely gets a little swirled around with the never ending story in my head because there's like one of them has a wolf in a cave. I think it's this one. No, that's the never-ending story, isn't it? I'm not going to spoil it for you. <sighs> It'll be a surprise. There's a wolf somewhere. And <laughs> all I know is that the Skeksis walk that line of, like, decay that is what I find scary. So it's a little on the line for me. It's not like I'm afraid of this movie. I view it as unpleasant. Interesting. I hope that you don't find anything too repellent about it when you watch it, and I apologize if you do. The Dark Crystal resonates with me because it seems flung out of space. It's so weird that this movie got made in that it is populated literally entirely by puppets. There are no visible humans anywhere, and that's incredibly intriguing. Yeah, I'm going to be really interested to talk about whether or not this was like Henson at the height of his powers and able to pull off just like a full puppet movie in a way that might not have been able to be done, what, six years later when The Labyrinth is made or even earlier when The Muppet Show is on. I'm excited to watch it again. I am aware that it is a classic and that other people like it. I just feel a little bit of a way about Oh, it's also that the life gets sucked out of people, which is also like kind of another thing that I'm not super into. This is going to be really interesting. This is definitely like touching on a few of my things that I don't enjoy. Look, if nothing else, like this podcast, it is a really bold experiment. So we'll see where it goes after the break. We'll see you then. A bold experiment is a bold description of this podcast also. We'll see you after the break. <laughs> And we're back from the break. We have just watched The Dark Crystal, the 1982 movie directed by Jim Henson and Frank Oz, 
Screenplay by David O'Dell, based on a story by Jim Henson. It has the voices of Stephen Garlick, Lisa Maxwell, Billy Whitelaw, and Joseph O'Connor. This movie was made on a budget of $25 million and brought in $41 million. It was actually doing pretty well at the box office. As a piece of context, it came in third on its opening weekend behind The Toy and Tootsie. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Just wanted to bring it back around. It was the 16th highest grossing film of 1982 in North America. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's weird. Brie, what was your experience with The Dark Crystal? Take your time. <laughs> I don't want to do this podcast anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I really did not like this movie. I, I didn't like it. I, okay, let me be more specific. The thing that sent me over the edge was my actual nightmare that happens about midway through the film when the Skeksis are all eating a meal together. It was rotting creatures making mouth noises and then food <laughs> dropping out of their mouths. I literally plugged my ears. <laughs> Just everything about the aesthetic of this is not for me. Like, I have a real aversion towards rotting. And I knew that I did not like the podlings after they get the stuff sucked out of them, but was excited to learn on watching it again this time that I also hate the podlings before the life is sucked out of them. Like, I don't find anything cute or charming about this film, and it makes it really hard to get into the story. Oh, that really changes how I was going to frame this discussion, because my plan coming in was to talk about how the bad story is buoyed by the great visuals. So we're at a real loss here, friends. All right, let me try to send us off in a different trajectory. I enjoyed watching this movie as an effort in puppetry and nothing else. I do think that the thing that I like most about this movie is its ambition. This came about because Jim Henson had... I don't want to say struggled with making children's material because he obviously loved what he did with all of his Muppet stuff, but he was compelled by the idea of making puppetry for adults. He had failed at it previously because the first season of SNL had a bunch of adult Muppet material that went really badly. So this was kind of his palate cleanser attempt to make a movie aimed at an older audience that was all puppets. And I really love the big swing, even if it's a swing and a miss. I mean, he definitely has a very dark aesthetic banging around in his brain somewhere because the early Muppet stuff, in fact, the early ads that he did were all about like one guy killing off another guy for not liking the right kind of coffee. And the original conception of the Muppet show, I think, was called the Muppet show Sex and Violence. So he has this dark aesthetic and I'm into it. But everything about this is just some weird, new agey, environmentalism, late 70s, early 80s, lots of drugs, fever dream. And it is just not super relatable to me. Yeah, I think a key thing to know about the development of this movie is that everyone was on LSD. <laughs> that wouldn't surprise me. That wasn't in the Wikipedia article, but peyote. A deeper dive might reveal which drug directed this movie. But the genesis of this film is that it started with the design work by Brian Froud and Jim Henson. And 
they sort of backfilled a story. And I think that is really evident watching is that they have a really clear visual sense of what's happening. And the story is just whatever will get you to the next set piece. And I think the getting there is something that they're really interested in. There are multiple 10 to 30 second pieces where you're just watching some really advanced puppetry work of Jen walking through a glen or through a swamp. They're doing things with frogs and bugs and other little creatures. It's just really clear that Henson and Oz are interested in anything else except for the main story. Yeah, I think that's part of the problem of having people on the creative team of the puppet development being in charge of the story and direction they needed an outside voice to be like yes that is a wonderful puppet what does it have to do with what's going on i was just really underwhelmed by all the vocal performances except for agra and when you are putting so much weight on these two quasi-humanoid puppets and then they don't have the vocal performances behind it. And those puppets don't have a ton of emotionality in their face and movement in their face. It's just bland from kind of start to finish, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, they really struggled with the fact that they didn't... I don't even want to say they didn't have the technology because Agra also has a very articulated face. She has moving eyebrows. Her mouth moves in a lot of different ways. For whatever reason... That same technology is not applied to either of their Gelfling leads. They are completely motionless masks, which you're right, puts a huge pressure on their voice actors to try and bring something to it, which they largely don't. My note from watching it is these Gelfling faces just can't convey anything like fear or anticipation. They just convey waiting. And what they got wrong in this movie that I think they got right in Labyrinth is casting humans in the two lead roles because you need something for the audience to really anchor onto. And my favorite character in this movie was the dog because it actually had some life and animation and Agra for the exact same reason is that she just had dynamism as a puppet. And the two Gelflings, I think that they wanted to bring some kind of human element for the audience to connect to against the Skeksis and these other characters that don't really look like us. They instead just made some bland ass people who I didn't care if they lived or died. Neither of them has a personality, which is a real problem. Like, Agra is a dynamic character. Even when she has no real backstory to speak of, She's giving you something. The Gelflings just seem flat in terms of having no background, no wants or needs. Jen doesn't seem to know a goddamn thing at any point in this story. They're nobody. And the pieces of the story don't really work. Like, Jen's family was killed. Kira is on her own for other reasons that we don't really understand. And then the Skeksis, late in the movie are terrified when they suddenly see two Gelflings. And I get that maybe part of it is now because of the prophecy of all the suns coming together. But in theory, they have been seeing Gelflings all of the times that they were getting the Gelflings and sucking their life force and eating them. And then they they kind of point out that like this Gelfling civilization is really old and someone makes a reference to hundreds of years ago. And I'm like, how old is Jen? What? So... To get into the problems right from the beginning, the main issue with this story and with how this movie tells the story is that we start 
with a total data dump of a narrator trying to set the scene for us. And that is a premonition of how no plot will be delivered unless it is through direct-to-audience exposition. Yeah, exactly. And I'm going to jump all the way to the end of the movie, is that then Jen, when he's got the crystal and he's like, okay, well, it looks like the suns are aligned and I've got the shard and something, something. And I was like, if you think that you've gotten to the end of the movie and your audience needs this level of explication about the core principle of the story, that should have been the moment at which you like went back and retooled because something had gone wrong. I don't think I ever realized the extent to which characters in this movie only ever talk to each other about this prophecy. The prophecy is the topic of literally every conversation, and there aren't that many conversations. Most of it is single narrator voiceover. And the other problem with the Gelfling faces is that for a while, I didn't realize Jen's mouth could move at all because he's doing a whole <laughs> bunch of interior monologue. And it was kind of, I hate to say this, a lazy way to animate the puppet. It felt like them getting around the problem of the fact that it was difficult, I believe, to make Jen's mouth move. We have two main characters who were essentially created to be immobile. And part of this is a script problem, too. They don't talk to other people that much. And a great way to get information out is to have Jen in conversation with all of the mystics in the beginning. Instead of having a voiceover, have him talk to the people he lives with, for Christ's sake. Why? They don't tell him anything useful. The master who dies is just like, well, you got to go this away, and then doesn't tell him anything about the Dark Crystal. I couldn't believe it when late in the movie, Jen and Kira are like, this must be a shard from the Dark Crystal. And I'm like, did they send you on this mission without even telling you what the baseline win of the mission was? It, it felt like adding problems for the sake of extending the story. Well, the issue is that there is no story. Beyond the prophecy that they establish as the Gelflings will fix the crystal and reunite the two species, there's not another plot. It's literally just Jen going through the steps of the prophecy that somehow A, everyone talks about, but B, Jen never personally knew. Yeah, you think that being raised up by the wise masters, they might have like mentioned that like over a meal one time in his apparently hundreds of years of being alive. We have no idea how old he is. I don't know why that annoyed me so much, but here we are. It is strange that everyone knows there's a prophecy about Gelfling and everyone believes that Jen is the last one. There's literally no one else the prophecy could apply to. You might have wanted to pick a day other than the day of your death to start filling him in. Or teach him the languages that Kira knows. Tell him where he's going and why this is important. You're right. He's the only one who is just absolutely clean slate about this whole prophecy thing. And it would be one thing if Kira was the one and she had been raised with the podling. So like maybe they aren't as aware of this prophecy. But the mystics, do they not want the prophecy to be solved? Yeah. It's some real hippy-dippy bullshit where they're just like, it's gonna happen one way or another. The mystics are the full, like, laissez-faire, like, we're just gonna let go, and the prophecy's just gonna happen one way or another, man. Like, 
I didn't mean to laugh, but I did. The very first shot of one of the mystics is there's this perfect sand mandala in front of him. And then the puppeteer just like can't make that last sand dump. And it's just like a of like one (laughs) wrong move of sand. And I was like, great job, everyone. (laughs) It's all this like late Cold War, early environmental movement, disaffected hippie malaise and like searching for answers. Man, this whole thing just feels like such a coin flip on whether or not they were going to like produce a movie or like accidentally create Heaven's Gate. (laughs) That's how Heaven's Gate started. Not as a movie about puppets, but anyway, let's keep it moving. Yeah. So let's get into Jen's journey because I feel like we can talk about some of the good things in this film as we talk about some of the amazing puppet work, some of the design work, some of the music is really good. I want to give a shout out to Trevor Jones, who did the score, uh, who also did the score for Labyrinth. Uh, Brian Froud also did the designs for Labyrinth. This is a team that came together again later. But as we get into the world and just sort of explore it, the plot of the world building is terrible, but the aesthetics of the world building are pretty cool. It's great. Don't get me wrong that because I happen to find some of the puppets that they created like repellent, that is just a function of them doing a good job creating those puppets. Like the design of the Skeksis and the design of the Mystics and basically the design of everything except for Jen and Kira is great. Again, I think this is a symptom of how the film came together. They created a whole world and probably came up with the plot of the Gelflings saving it dead last. And so I don't think anyone involved in the movie cared about Jen and Kira that much, which is sadly incredibly apparent in how they are designed and scripted and otherwise deployed. And that's also the problem with making them humanoid is that as soon as they have that shape, you expect them to move like humans do. So when their arms are just like akimbo like puppets, it completely destroys the illusion that these are real creatures. Whereas the mystics and the Skeksis and Agra, they all feel real in a way that I've always associated with the Muppets, but it's just a real problem with the the two main leads. It's such a shame that they happen to be the two characters we spend the most time with. And it's funny because I don't even know that they needed a vaguely humanoid form for the lead. Like, when you watch the Muppet movie, you are happy to buy into the frog and the pig as your lead characters. I would have rather a very animated sock puppet for Jen than the sad mask that they served me. It would be like if Sarah in Labyrinth just had no personality whatsoever no opinions, no anything. She just happened to wander through a labyrinth and eventually end up in a room with David Bowie and she said some words and she won. There's no passion behind what they're doing, in part because there's no understanding of what they're doing until the very end. We'll get to the very end at the very end because I was deeply annoyed by that, but go ahead. To your point, it would have been a very interesting movie if Jen had started out not knowing anything and slowly learned over the course of his journey what his purpose was. There's a way to make this a story that is an actual story and not just a look at what we can do with the puppets. To be perfectly honest, it feels like they spent too much money on the Skeksis and the Mystics, the latter of whom are really not important to the story at all. 
So then they only had enough budget for like one more puppet. So that was Agra. So she's got to download everything that the mystics didn't tell him, which is everything. But it would have been cool if he had had to make like a couple stops during the way, like Agra sends him on to a different cool puppet and he learned something else. There just could have been more stops along the journey as opposed to just like a vague direction up a mountain and then straight on to the palace. Yeah. And I don't want to take too many digs at David O'Dell, who is our screenwriter, but most of his experience prior to this was writing for The Muppet Show. There aren't conversations that have exposition. There aren't events that forward the plot. It really is just a way to get to the next puppet every time. As a real testament to how effective some stories are versus others, all of my memories of this movie were actually the never-ending story. And it did become quite clear to me when we got to Agra's house and she had that like big rotating solar system that I was like, oh, oh, okay. I watched this movie one time at like 13 and then I definitely started it a second time and turned it off. And that was the right move. I would love to know why Agra's place is so exceptionally flammable. It seems to be made entirely of metal, (laughs) but that shit burns right to the ground in 10 seconds flat. Guys, you spent too much money on Agra's house. They had to build that actual like gyroscope or whatever the fuck that is. It serves no story purpose. It doesn't move the plot forward. What are we doing? There is a modern dark crystal adaptation that does a great job with all the things that we are complaining about right now in terms of better world building, better effects, better facial expressions and vocal performances from your leads. So there's a good idea buried in here. This is not the movie that susses that out. Having watched this, I am more inclined to watch the prequel series because there are so many great ideas here and there are so many great characters here, but it's just a dud. Everything individually is pretty to look at, or if not pretty, at least fun to watch, but there's no coherent whole. It feels like it would be really fun to watch on the same drugs on which it was made. (laughs) (laughs) By the time we get to Agra's house, I had questions about like, where did she get all of those crystal shards? Are there like other crystals that we need to go deal with after this? And B, Jen, my friend, why don't you just take all the crystal pieces just in case? Like, I'm sure that flute thing worked, but just in case. I want to know desperately how long Jen stared blankly at those crystal shards, because it seems like it was for, (laughs) it seems like a few hours that he was just sitting there just like, huh, crystal shards. And Agra must have been like, so were you going to like, my favorite part about that scene is when he says, I know it's one of these three. And I'm like, bitch, how? (laughs) You don't know a goddamn thing. You don't know what the dark crystal is. You don't know where you are. Until 10 minutes ago, you thought Agra was going to kill you. And again, I want to point out, his master was like, go meet Agra. And his first thought was, what if she murders me? Why? Like, nothing about this (laughs) makes a lick of sense. And so, yeah, the idea that he's just not like, well, these are easy to carry. Not that I brought a bag, but... (laughs) 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 and the fact that agra doesn't meet this young person and isn't like all right on second thought i'm just gonna handle this myself absolutely does not hold up (laughs) i need a movie that is just about agra because she is 
easily the best part of this film. Like we've discussed, she is the most expressive puppet, which really helps. She has the most expressive vocal performance from Billy Whitelaw. Agra is the character that you want to follow in this movie. It's also really clear that the filmmakers like her the most. She has that kind of Miss Piggy cadence, which you can see Frank Oz directing her to do. I know there's a prophecy, but like prophecies were made to be broken. Also, when she's in jail at the end of the film and Kira gets free, why does she not free Agra? I would bring the witch. That's the thing that I wonder about this is that Agra is clearly the one person who is in no way intimidated by the Skeksis. Yes! She scares them. She talks some shit to that table full of horrible dead birds. And they fucking take it. Yeah, they don't seem like they think they have power over her. And notably, she has the crystal pieces. When she visited the chamber that day, maybe she could have just slipped that little segment of the dark crystal in there. There's a real need to follow the prophecy to the letter in this movie. One of the things that is never explained that I would love to know, who gave us this prophecy? Also, the prophecy is like, all right, go ahead and ruin everything for a thousand years and then let's see how you do. I get that it's supposed to be like a punishment for the curiosity of the figures in white that we see at the end. But Jesus, like, that's a big fucking penalty for everybody else to pay. Jen and Kira are now tasked with completely restoring the Gelfling population, which I have a lot of notes about genetic viability of their offspring, <laughs> which we won't get into. <laughs> I'm just saying that eventually one of the kids is going to mate with Kira if they want to keep the line going, and it's, it's going to be messy. The perfect example of, we designed this thing, we will use it once, are the crystal bats. <laughs> There's one single moment where they're like, oh, we will send the crystal bats. Everything that they see, we see. They have one bat that finds the Gelfling and they're not like, send a second bat. <laughs> and let's go ahead and send the bats with the giant crabs. Just send them at the same time. Why is the sending of the bats the secondary protocol after the crabs have failed? The Skeksis are not strategists in this film by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> I have a lot of questions about what they think they're going to accomplish amongst the nine of them that are alive. Even things like they fully exile Chamberlain. And I'm like, I feel like you need everyone you can get on the team, folks. I, I do have an actual serious question about my joke about genetics. Are some of the Skeksis girls, because they're all dressed rather like courtly, foppish sort of a way, but there are a few that are voiced by women. And it's not clear to me if they are supposed to be female Skeksis. Like, is this a reproducing population? So... Jim Henson intended for the Skeksis to all be gender neutral. Some of them are referred to by male pronouns in the film, so that kind of defeats that intention. Mm -hmm. But they are essentially designed as agender. I do not know if either they or the mystics reproduce. It doesn't seem that way, but also maybe it's just that none of them are into each other. I don't know. 
And the... <laughs> Sorry, it took me a second on the, like, maybe they're just not into each <laughs> Imagine you've lived together a thousand years and you're like, now, who can I... Just not into anyone at this party. <laughs> There's only nine of them. It's pretty easy to imagine nine people that I wouldn't fuck. I, I know, but we're also talking about the potential foridation of the species. I think I'm like, wait. <laughs> a side note, this is a problem in my personal life where like, I'm constantly thinking about like what replicable genetic populations look like. And my partner is like, can you please stop? This is really creepy. <laughs> Maybe that's a side note. Maybe it goes in the episode. We'll see how we go. Fully goes in the episode. I mean, you cut out a whole, like, 20 minutes of me talking about, like, Catholic iconography in the Romeo and Juliet episode, so I never know what's going to stay or go. I was, like, pleased to see it gone, but disappointed at the same time. (laughs) If one of us laughs, it stays. That's literally my rubric. (laughs) I can't believe you're surprised by that. (laughs) The Kelly editing philosophy just writ whole. I love it. Oh, fuck, where were we? So I I think the Skeksis believe that if the Dark Crystal prophecy fails, they will be renewed, right? I I should know this. Like, I just watched this movie and I still don't know. Well, that's the thing is that I believe the Skeksis believe that they have already killed off all of the Gelfling. So presumably the Skeksis are already running under the assumption that the prophecy couldn't be fulfilled because they've done their part. So yeah, I don't know what they think is next. I mean, I guess they're being smart to be like, we've really got to white knuckle it right up in time, the moment of the prophecy, just in case one of these Gelflings fucking turns up. So the other thing that we get to explore when we meet the two final Gelflings is that they are a gender binary species, apparently. And there are some real marked differences between male and female Gelflings that aren't fully explored, but are pretty obvious to the audience. Let's get into it. What did you notice about male and female Gelflings? Well, on just a physical level, Kira has wings. They only go down. She can only coast on them. She can't ever rise up. But secondarily, Kira has a real empathetic natural kind of intelligence, but she doesn't have the kind of intellectual intelligence like Jen has, like reading. She's like, what are those marks? I wanted to die. I will say, I think it's because she was raised by the pod people. I don't think that's a gender thing. I think that's just that the pod people don't have the written language knowledge that the mystics do. I'm going to forgive that a little bit, though not a lot. Hmm... Also, (laughs) I think that it's unfair to call Jen an intellectual since he is the dumbest character in this movie by a long shot. I mean, don't get me wrong. He's dumb as rocks and Kira's going to spend her life regretting being brought back to life. But here we are. My other thing about Kira is that she apparently speaks the languages of the animals, but none of these animals talk. It's not like she's making animal noises. She's saying words. But the Animals don't say words. That's a leap of logic that I was just not willing to make this time around for some reason. She also just gets a whole bunch of animals who do not need to be involved in this involved. Those long-legged walkers, they both die. And no one has any compunction about that whatsoever. Yes, the land striders are super cool to look at. They're very well designed. But A, they both die. B, they quote-unquote 
free the podlings that are in the basket there, but then they jump off the cliff and leave a basket full of podlings surrounded by like eight <laughs> Garthim. What do you think happened next, friends? The fact that Jen does not put two and two together, that the crab people attack and kill everyone he interacts with is just... <sighs> I will say that is not actually true. He does specifically say that it is his fault that the pod people got attacked. Then he throws away the dark crystal shard, which is the ostensible reason why they are on this journey. And then, of course, Kira, because she is a feminized creature in this world, is just like, oh, no. Well, let me tend and care for you. I see that you are cut on your arm and I have no further questions. Neither of them has any personality, so I can't blame them for just making Kira useless. Getting them to the castle is entirely under her motivation. Except after they jump off the cliff, they find like a random hole in a wall and Jen just goes, this leads into the castle. And I'm like, I'm sorry. Maybe you dingbat. <laughs> Under what authority have you made this decision? You're just like, let's go into this hole. That's not even the first time that Jen's just like, let's look in this hole. Like, I'm super glad that just her dog pops out of it. Don't put your head in the hole, man. It's like an instinctual practice that keeps you alive. Well, it's because after Agra's place burns down, he apparently just wanders the wastelands. He doesn't know what he's doing or why. And he's not like, I guess I'll go back to the mystics and ask follow-up questions now that I have this crystal. He's like, I'll just trudge in a random direction to a place that I am unfamiliar with, which is the least useful choice he could have made. And that's partially the fault of the mystics. And I guess it's partially the fault of Agra. But like, I don't know. I genuinely hoped Jen would die, and it disappointed me that he did not. It's a shame. I want to like this movie every time. This is like an aspirational favorite. I always want this to be a good movie, and it just never is. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the attitude I took into it as I was like, maybe this time I'll really connect with the Dark Crystal. And friends, I'm just shaking my head. It didn't happen. And I know now that it will never happen. I'm excited to be relieved of this burden. <laughs> Your quest to get to the end of this movie is markedly more difficult than Jen's quest to get to the end of this movie. Dude, when there was still an hour left, I was like, ready to pack it in. So Jen climbs into a hole that he is certain goes to the palace. And Chamberlain is already there, again, defying belief. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he rides on the crabs like that would make so much more sense because we've seen how fast Skeksis move and it's not fast. <laughs> but he's there to fuck some shit up. And I have a lot of questions about everyone's motivation in that scene. But Bree, what are your thoughts on the Gelflings entering the palace? At no point in any of this scene, having finally arrived at their destination, does anyone move with any kind of alacrity urgency or anything that is approaching the fact that we have a very small window of time in which to make this happen. Agra talks about it at one point. She's like, hey, the window's closing immediately. And then like 15 minutes later, we are still within the window. And I just needed the movie to end. Similar in the urgency thing, Chamberlain does get his hands on Kira, but he's just like, 
here's a Gelfling. He's lucky that they're like, you know what? We're going to give Chamberlain his spot back because he notably does not negotiate that. He's just sort of trusting that everyone's going to be nice. And based on what I've seen in this movie, I wouldn't. Yeah, I'd, I'd be like, otherwise, I'm about to drop her down this hole onto the Dark Crystal and we'll see what happens. <laughs> So before Kira is captured, we are treated to just something that I absolutely cannot stomach. I thought I was going to barf of the podling having their life sucked out of them by the reflective proportion or something, something blah, blah, blah of the dark crystal. The fact that the person who is in charge of that is apparently down there explaining the process to every single podling is bananas and not efficient. <laughs> Like, there is so much telling in this movie. Like, we get it. We're good. I thought that was also fucking hilarious that we happened to zoom in on the moment where he's like, you know what? I'm going to tell this podling what's going on. Just strap him in, turn on the machine, and let it go. Also, is it possible to just close your eyes in that chair because especially if someone was telling me that looking at this beam is going to suck the life essence out of me i'd look for an alternative there is a small chance that this pink essence that makes you younger is where isabella rossellini was getting the elixir from i definitely <laughs> have a note that the emperor looking into the mirror is the meryl streep and death becomes her moment i was like oh my god there it is the other problem in the life essence draining scenes, when Kira gets strapped in the chair, she gets most of the life essence drained out of her before Agra is like, Kira, call the animals. You know how to do that. A, Agra has never met Kira and does not know that she can do that. Oh my God, you're right. She doesn't even know her name. B, if you know she can do that, go ahead and give her that advice before she's almost dead. <laughs> and see the elaborate plan to free all the animals seems to be hoping that enough of the animals will attack the guy who's in charge of that to accidentally back him into the button that turns the machine off. Yeah, none of the animals help Kira. Also, if all of the animals could get out of their cages prior to this, <laughs> why what? hadn't they tried that? <laughs> <laughs> like, they're just waiting around for someone to be like, hey, everyone, open the door. Give it a go. <laughs> that the animals were not invested in their own survival without Kira's influence is just so stupid. And then she's free. She doesn't help Agra, which, again, feels like a very useful ally in a fight. But off she pops to go find What's-His-Face, even though who has the crystal at this point? No one knows. Yeah, so they all make very casual progress to the room where the crystal is. God. They're all terrible at hiding. For people who are going slow, <laughs> you'd think they could at least duck. When the camera pans around the chamber and there are just two human-sized children standing on various balconies, there are Skeksis looking directly at them and they're just like, guess everything's working out with this prophecy. I have a question about how that specific piece of the crystal got broken off. It's not a shard from the side. It is a drill out from the dead fucking center of the dark crystal. How did that happen? Because it's not by accident. 
I don't know. There's also a scene much earlier where the Skeksis are viewing Jen or something like through the dark crystal. And I was like, oh, this cutout must be like what the shard is. And then it was just a completely different aspect of the dark crystal that didn't have any impact on it later. Also, the crystal calls them with a crazy noise. And I was like, I'm sorry. Does the crystal have an invested part in this story? Is it sentient? Why did it pipe up now to be like, hey, everyone, there's a gelfling? Because, like, <laughs> if that's information the crystal wants the Skeksis to have, seems like a weird time to bring it up. So the 30 or so minutes where Jen is poised on top of the crystal, watching Kira get murdered and shouting about Kira getting murdered and all the rest of it, but is not actually fucking attending to the matter at hand, which is getting the shard of the crystal into the goddamn dark crystal. I want you to know that I snapped my fingers at the screen in a pretty unappealing way for a long time. I had the same thought in this viewing because it's not as if we haven't been told that the crystal needs to be made whole. That's literally the only plot point. Jen has just said it out loud to us. And by just, you mean 10 minutes ago because he's up there for a while. It's also that nothing happens. It's just reaction shots of like Jen, Kira, Skeksis, other nameless Skeksis, other nameless Skeksis. Technically, <laughs> they all have names, which is also dumb because not one of them is ever said. But we just look at everyone looking at each other, several of whom can't make facial expressions. And I was ready. I, it's just like, oh, man, the only chance to save my species has just been killed in a self-sacrificing effort so that I can reunite the Dark Crystal and make our world better. I'll get on that once they're no longer distracted. My dude, you had one job. Well, also, Jen did not go into this thinking that he would be able to reestablish his species. His belief at the beginning is that he is the only Gelfling, so he shouldn't be that upset because, A, as you brought up, without incest, there are no more Gelfling regardless of whether Kira exists or not. But B... I just want to say I'm really sorry to have just brought that entire discussion into my brain and also into this discussion. Oh, we all understand that the Gelfling don't exist without either siblings fucking each other or someone fucking their mom. They're just going to be real different in a few generations or they're going to be dead. I don't know which it is, but it's fine either way. Judging by how the rest of this movie went, I'm going to assume dead. <laughs> I'm excited for them to peter out, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> anyway, we were talking about Jen attempting to do the only thing that he's been groomed to do his entire life, but was given no information about which to do it. Yeah, so he reunites the shard, and apparently the Skeksis just put up black wallpaper over everything, because it's not as though something new happens. It's just that all the crummy shit falls off, and there's a beautiful crystal castle onto which everyone will be green screened afterwards. The green screening that happens at the end of this movie is wild. Like there's almost no green screening early in the movie. And then in the back, like 10 minutes, it's like they discovered the technology and we're just like, let's go for it. I have to assume that they just built a miniature version of the set rather than doing a whole new one. And so to put everyone on the beautiful crystal castle they'd built, they just had to like screen them in. But what's clear is that 
they used the lighting from the old castle, so everyone is super, <laughs> super dark in this very bright castle. <laughs> we also have to take a moment in the castle to restore Kira, since clearly she has no value as a drained shell of her formerly, I can't bring myself to say sexy, self. And she is restored to her Gelfling self, but not until we take a moment of dramatic tension where, like, the podlings have been fixed, but we're not sure if Kira's going to be beautiful again. And then, oh, thank heaven she is. Well, the other thing about Kira's rebirth is that before Jen has any idea what the fuck is happening, he just picks up her corpse and brings it to the nearest light being in front of him. Like, he's pretty presumptuous that they're going to be able to fix that. He's like, hey, I have this dead girlfriend I've just met. You seem to know what's going on. Like, why does he think they're going to bring her back to life? I mean, this is like a little bit white men all over. Is that like everyone he's ever met has helped him. And sent him on his way, so he just makes the correct assumption that someone who has no interest in his life whatsoever will make it better. There's a lot of people who get to the place they need to be without having earned it. Chamberlain can apparently fly on his little dead chicken wings. Like, he is every fucking where these Gelfling turn up, and he does not seem to have clothes, let alone a mode of transportation. Chamberlain is another character that I was confused was not voiced by either Henson or Frank Oz. Again, I, I remain baffled by bringing in these other voice actors when I think they then directed them to speak in a way and behave in a way that was like really tight with the Henson brand. I just assumed that the hmm had always been done by Frank Oz. Chamberlain is the one character that I actually remembered from this. I love that performance. He's another one, yeah, you're right, who is dynamic. Again, there's a little more articulation in the face. He gets to have eyebrows that move, which does a lot for a face. And yeah, there's more levels to the vocal performance. I do think there's a smart inclination to hire actors who can add levels. I think that they were hit and miss and actually getting actors who were good at doing vocal performance, which is a specific skill. I don't want to say whether Stephen Garlick is a good actor in general, but he doesn't put enough into the voice-only aspect of Jen. Chamberlain, as a voice, works in like a radio play. You know, the way that this feels so stilted makes me wonder if... They had done all the puppetry work and then the voice actors were asked to come in and then like fill in the dialogue in the places where it was already had been performed. It will thrill you to know that you are exactly correct on this, especially with the Skeksis, because in the initial cut of this film, the Skeksis do not speak English. They have a fake language that is subtitled and test audiences were like, no, thank you. Dark Crystal test audiences. Thank you for taking one for the team here. I don't, I can't, ima I can't imagine what it would be like to have the main villain and only creatures of interest in this movie be functionally inaccessible. What drugs were we on? Yeah, people 
involved in this movie didn't understand the definition between having a weird idea and world building. They have a lot of shit that they're throwing at the wall, but it doesn't form a coherent whole. There's no internal logic to the world of this film. The other thing that is really missing is because it's been such a long period of time of decline and ruin and all of these things is that you also don't get a sense of what the benefit will be of restoring the dark crystal to the podlings, to the remaining gelflings, to anyone else. Like we don't really have an understanding of what we've lost and what we could have had instead. And that is a real tough hanger to rest a story on. You're right. It would have been a very different movie if anyone was acting for a personal reason. What happens when the crystal is made whole is a surprise to every single character and the audience. We've been with Jen when he's walked through a green, lush land, and Kira seems to have, alongside the podlings, have created a agriculture and subsistence. What have we turned back on here? Like, just the area around the palace? Like, I guess it is good to get rid of the Skeksis who seem to be predatorial and sort of Republican in gathering their wealth and making sure that everyone else gets nothing. And turning everybody into drones. But also... After we reunite the crystal and the Skeksis and the mystics reunite as one race, they are immediately like, hey, it's been real. We're going to ascend to the sky and never talk to you again. Like, that is laughable. My last note for this movie is so anarchy then. The world's going to be radically different from the one that you've experienced yesterday and hope you're up to the challenge. Bye-bye. Yeah, woe betide the next planet that those assholes land on. Like, I guess this works out great for the pod people. Like, I guess this works out <laughs> great for the podlings. Like, they have... <laughs> I've got you calling them pod people now, which I do appreciate. Like, they suddenly have a world that is free of horrible crab things. No one's trying to kill them. They've gotten their life essence back and they don't have to be slaves in the palace. Things are cool for them. Jen and Kira, I don't know what the fuck they're going to do, and they don't either because they've never known what's going on. There's just so much gobbledygook in this movie. Listen, I want to be clear. Jim Henson was a genius. Yeah. And he did a lot of amazing shit. Absolutely. If he had had better collaborators, this could have been a great film. It was not. It is garbage that has a beautiful patina upon it. But I have infinite respect for what he was aiming at. I agree. There is an ambition and an aesthetic here that I respect. I, Like I said, I don't find the aesthetic potentially appealing, but the fact that I find it repulsive means that it like brought something out of me, right? So like they definitely accomplished something. It's just that the genre in which they were operating in terms of story went on to produce better pieces of work like The NeverEnding Story or even like The Wiz, which I think comes out before this. There was like a real sense of like collapse of the American system and that we had destroyed the environment and that at any time the Soviets might nuke us. And so there was this kind of just like existential fear that I think this movie is responding to, but they missed 
they missed some of the fun as well. There's like two jokes in this movie. Like it's so self-serious that it winds up being not fun. And like a puppet show is fun. Yeah, you can feel Jim Henson clearly reacting to and intentionally stepping away from his earlier work. Even he was resistant to the idea of including Kira's dog because he felt that it was too comedic and a repeat of his earlier work. He didn't want to have that element in there. And that's one of the easiest touchstones is like silly dog that has a too big mouth. And he really wanted to take this seriously. Well, it feels like he didn't want to give you anything to enjoy. And I feel like they course corrected into the labyrinth, which has the elements of scariness and seriousness and stakes, but also gives you a good time. Totally. For me, this is a very interesting experiment overall. And I think that what I appreciate about the movie is the exploration of what it means to make a quote unquote grown up movie with puppets. But I do also understand its failings. Brie, do you have final thoughts about The Dark Crystal? I now feel like I have given The Dark Crystal a good go. So this has been a weight lifted off my shoulders and I do appreciate it. I'm so happy to have given you that freedom to never see this movie again. You, my dear listeners, are not free from us. In fact, I would encourage you to find us in more places. On iTunes, you can rate us five stars and leave a review. You can find us on Instagram at Replaying Favorites. And we have a Twitter at Replaying Faves, F-A-V-S. Please follow us in all the places. We want to inundate you like a goddamn Gelfling prophecy. Now, all that is left is to leave this movie in the dust and move on to a new film. What are we watching next week? I feel like we've had a couple swings and misses over the last couple of weeks. I guess we'll see what happens next week. But I really wanted to bring a movie that I thought we would both just enjoy and have a good time with. So we are going to watch 1963's Charade, starring Cary Grant and Audrey Hepburn. Oh, what a delight. I have heard the title of this film. It has all the pieces. It's got Cary Grant. It's got Audrey Hepburn. It has a Henry Mancini score. It is often described as the Hitchcock movie that Hitchcock never directed. It's like a fun, weird little like romantic will they won't they comedy mixed with a mystery. It's a lot of fun. I think we'll have a good time. I assume, Chris, that you have not seen this movie. Not once. I don't really want to say more because It is an aforementioned mystery. So let's just pick it up here next week and we will see you all then. Bye. We're going to have to cut down the like 25 minutes of us just being like, aren't the Gelfling shithouse.